Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 11 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 15th of April. And Leon, we've got Ian Porter this week. That's right. Ian Porter's a motoring specialist and he's going to be talking us all about the impact of self-driving cars on the industry. Yep, the way things are going to happen. They say it'll be a while yet. There's some uh, issues, but uh, they're on the way. There's no doubt. That's right. And he, uh, anyone who knows anything about uh, the industry, it's Ian Porter. So it'll be really good talking to him. And after that, we have a chat with economist Saul Leslake, and we're going to ask him what he thinks about this idea of having a royal commission into banks. And it's a great discussion about that. Yep, that'll look forward to that. So now uh, let's talk with Ian Porter. Today we're talking to one of Australia's motoring industry experts, Ian Porter, a commentator on the industry and what you might call a sage as well. And we're asking him today to look into the future and tell us about how he sees the advent of autonomous cars, what it's going to do possibly to disruption of the automotive industry and where it's all going. So welcome, Ian. On the basis of that intro, what do you think? of what's happening we're on the verge of uh, uh, some big changes in in uh, mobility i think uh, gary is what the experts call it and leon automated cars they now call it because autonomous cars implies that they make their own decisions but they don't so automated cars uh, do do promise a revolution in in public transport and uh, and transport generally and car ownership because uh, you might need to have a car in your driveway permanently or own one because uh, you can get one uh, pretty easily just by uh, using a smartphone. Just whistle it up on an app. That's right. So what kind of impact do you think these automated cars will have? I mean, what impact will they have, say, on car parks, on the car industry, on the oil industry? You'd have to be uh, a smarter bloke than me or someone with a um, crystal ball to get it right. But certainly uh, car makers might be faced with the prospect of making fewer cars because people won't need to own a car anymore. They'll just summon up a, uh, on an automated vehicle to take them where they want to go, which means that that vehicle can then serve someone else in the next hour and someone else in the next hour and someone else in the next hour, which means that you don't need three cars to go into the city and all find a car park because that one car can take three people into the city. So uh, there might be fewer cars sold. And that fits with another trend that we've got now where the millennials uh, in particular don't share the same fascination with cars that their parents do. And the desire to own a car these days is much less amongst uh, younger people than it was in the past. They see cars really as a burden, you know, all the costs involved and parking and hassle and all that stuff. So um, it fits right in with their uh, with their lifestyle of uh, not wanting to be encumbered by this asset that you can only use you know, one or two hours a day. And that's pushed on by the move to living in smaller apartment towers in urban areas, isn't it? That's right, yes. There is a trend to, um, to uh, developers uh, making apartment towers without any parking facilities in them. So what impact would this have on uh, broader industries like, say, the car parking industry, for example? Well, that's a very good point. If if cars just uh, deliver people to the office and, and then disappear off somewhere else and take someone else to the shops, then there won't be that much uh, requirement for parking. Um, and so, uh, yes, that could, could easily um, threaten the viability of Tullamarine Airport, for instance. 
It, it could, but it would also <laughs> change the shape of cities, wouldn't it? Because suddenly there'd be less need for parking spaces in the streets, for example, and that would free up open spaces, wouldn't it? It would, and particularly on, in Melbourne's, um, uh, you know, linear uh, shopping malls like, like Chapel Street and, and other places, uh, uh, Sydney Road. If you could know, you know, if you can free up those parking lanes, then the the trams will flow better, pedestrians will have a better run, and um, it'll be uh, a much uh, superior result. So does that mean then, say certainly on the freeways and tollways, you'd have dedicated automated car lanes, they could then run much closer together, presumably? That's the dream, uh, Gary, platooning they call it, and uh, yes, uh, particularly uh, Melbourne to Sydney, say, if, uh, if, if the Hume Highway was was uh, intersection free then yes you could you could uh, get uh, 10 cars running nose to tail at, at 150 kilometers an hour it doesn't matter depending on the roadway you know if it's raining or whatever but you don't need you could do it at night because of course you don't need uh, you don't need a driver to be able to see ahead the computer can see all snooze your way to sydney well that's right that's exactly right that's the dream now, Ian, I mean, what's interesting, though, is we have all these technology companies now getting into cars. We have Google, Apple, and for that matter, even Tesla is a technology company. I mean, the, the car feels like uh, driving in a Tesla is like it feels like a car designed in Silicon Valley rather than Detroit. What impact will that have on the car industry with the technology companies coming in? Well, Tesla is a great example. It's, he's, Elon Musk has, has done the impossible there and started a new car company at a time when the whole car industry is consolidating into, into monster companies that make, you know, five million or eight million units a year. And here's this bloke who takes over a disused factory in California and starts making converted Lotus sports cars. And now he's ramped it up into the Tesla S model, which is a fantastic sedan. And he's going to make a crossover, uh, soon. And, uh, it's just astonishing. And he's done it all with, uh, with an electric powered car, not the traditional internal combustion. So that's a fantastic example. Whether other companies will follow is another question because electric power is still expensive at least the batteries are expensive running them is very cheap the electricity is relatively cheap compared to petrol and and of course there's only one moving part in a in an electric motor not 99,000 yeah M- much simpler but also very powerful i mean the tesla s you mentioned does not to 100k in about 2.8 seconds yes in ludicrous mode that's right but of course it uses up a lot more electricity and that shortens the range and that gets you back to range anxiety which is the thing that has been holding electric vehicles back yeah simon hackett reckons his s will give him 300 kilometers range but with a light foot. Yeah, driven sensibly. That's right. If you stick within the speed limit, you know you'll get you'll get good mileage out of uh, out of even uh, the small electric vehicles. But we're not talking only about cars, are we? I mean, China apparently has got thirty odd uh, automated buses on the roads. Uh, we're going to have Ute, so that if I'm moving house, I can call up Uber and say I want a Ute or a people mover. So there's going to be a variety, isn't you know, there? It's not, not widely known, but we already have automated vehicles operating in Australia, but in a confined environment, that is. Rio Tinto has got of a fleet course, of the 50 Euclid. automated That's vehicles right, yes. up north. And uh, so they're proving it's, it's entirely possible. And in fact, I think there are, there are some examples of them being used underground too. So when you get onto the open road, you've got a, a whole lot of other problems to deal with. Yeah, like the human race. Exactly it. Exactly it. What what impact will this have on the oil industry? Well, we uh, you know it'd be nice to assume that all automated vehicles uh, were electric, but I don't think that'll be the case, Leon. 
But uh, certainly, um, if you've got uh, more sparing use of vehicles uh, and, and less traffic jams, thanks to intelligent transport systems, which are also coming, the simple example is traffic lights that are timed so that you can just flow through. But there's a lot more to intelligent transport systems than that. So uh, there will be a lot of uh, energy saved because cars won't spend so much time trapped in traffic jams and idling away and... Uh, wasting fuel. But that that will mean, I mean, at the moment we have an oil glut and that sent the oil price down from $100 back in 2014 to about $30 now. Morgan Stanley is saying it's going to be around $20 and uh, there are others saying that the oil price is going to be like this for the next 10 years or so. This will actually have an impact on the price of oil because it's going to increase the oil glut. It will, and unfortunately, that would Im- impair the take-up of electric vehicles because that, that would mean that it's much cheaper to run a petrol vehicle and therefore less attractive to make the switch to electric. So a low oil price is bad for, for um, well, for the take-up of electric vehicles but also the environment. That's right. Uh, I'd say China particularly, I mean, you can't see your hand in front of your face in Shanghai on a bad day and they are trying to do something about it second largest economy in the world if they get behind electricity rather than oil uh, would be a big boost for their section of the industry. It would indeed and there in fact uh, I don't know whether it's the the central government or the or state governments but there are programs out there where they where they heavily subsidize the take up of electric vehicles and it's fantastic you know we all sneer at uh, dictatorships and 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 communist countries but uh, they're running scared of uh, ahead of the smog problem because the people don't like it and so the government is going to have to fix it in china whereas we we faff around in our in our comfortable western societies thinking oh there's no climate change everything's all right sort of thing the chinese think i've got a smog problem i'm going to fix this and they do they're getting down to it yeah so final question i mean looking at say to 2026 where do you see automated cars going well you know, uh, if they get all the, all the legalities in place, uh, you know, there's, uh, the, at the moment there are some problems with take up, uh, with, with the legal structure. Car makers wouldn't release a fully automated car at the moment without the legal structure to support them because it'd be too risky. If there was an accident, they'd be fined. They'd be sued. Whereas, uh, what needs to happen is the government needs to legislate to permit the use of automated vehicles and give them a, a, a safe harbor saying that if the automated vehicle performed as as to specification, and there was an accident and someone died, the automated vehicle would not be found at fault. Ian Porter, thank you very much, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again fairly soon about this fast-moving change in where Thanks, we live. Thanks, It's a pleasure. Well, Leon, I think there are some issues, such as who's responsible for a crash if there is one. And so far in the US, some states have ruled that it's the car, not the human. That's right. I mean, there's a whole lot of legal issues still to sort out about it, and I'm not sure it's going to happen that quickly. No, no, some people are suggesting several years. That's right, especially when you have lawyers involved. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow, I always believe that the lawyers will always make a buck out of almost anything. Absolutely. And now, let's have a chat with economist Saul Eslake. Saul Leslake, there have been calls for a royal commission into the banking sector and financial services. What's your view about that? Well, I'm not persuaded that there's a strong case for a royal commission into banks. I obviously acknowledge that in many respects, banks have over the last few years failed to live up to the expectations that people reasonably have of them for sound 
and ethical behavior. But in my view, the best solution to that is more appropriate regulation and enforcement by the agencies who are charged with supervising and regulating banks rather than having a royal commission. But the reality is we've had something like 13 cases of, um, well, not quite malfeasance, but uh, 13 issues with banks over the last two years. I mean, obviously there is an issue going on. Uh, Yes, uh, there have been a series of issues and people are, I think, right to be angry about those. But in much the same way as when there is a spate of malfeasance or indeed even sometimes criminal activity in particular organisations, the appropriate response isn't necessarily to order a lengthy and costly royal commission or similar type of investigation. The appropriate response is to uh, enforce the law or the prevailing regulations to ensure that those responsible for enforcing the law and regulations are adequately resourced. And there may be grounds for doubting that in the case of those institutions or agencies responsible for supervising and regulating banks. But in my view, just because the public may well and may be justifiably angry about that series of scandals and uh, other instances of unsatisfactory performance on the part of financial institutions doesn't of itself constitute a case for a royal commission, in my view. Oh, well, the the government has pointed out we've had the Murray Financial System Inquiry. We've also had a Senate Inquiry. We've had a capability review. um, And there are some good recommendations that have come out of the Murray Inquiry in relation to powers uh, and uh, reviewing the penalties. And uh, so do you think that would be sufficient? Uh, Well, it clearly hasn't been sufficient since these uh, scandals do keep coming. So in saying that I don't believe a royal commission is the best way of responding to that, I'm certainly not wanting to sweep under the carpet the various instances of poor behaviour and examples of an unsatisfactory culture in some instances that have come to light. As I say, the public at large and the individuals who've been personally affected are right to be angry about that and are right to be calling for further regulatory action. Uh, But in my view, having a two or three year witch hunt, as a Royal Commission is likely to be, uh, may well give people opportunities to vent their anger in other forums. But I don't think that is going to cast any more light on the appropriate solutions to those problems than's available at the moment. Uh, But the issue is that trust has been dented. You know, the public no longer trusts the banks and uh, uh, the public is calling out for stronger action. Uh, That's true. And those calls, I think, have a good deal of merit in them. Uh, What I'm saying is that I don't believe that you need to wait another perhaps two years, as the Labor Party is envisaging, and spend at least $50 million of taxpayers' money and goodness knows how much of other organisations' money in order to achieve that kind of outcome. Uh, There have, as you say, been a number of both uh, formal inquiries and parliamentary committee hearings 
into various aspects of financial institutions and their conduct. And I think it would be more appropriate to draw upon what's come out of those inquiries in order to strengthen the regulation and supervision of financial institutions where there's a clear lead to do that, as there is in some areas, or to give the agencies charged with monitoring and enforcing those regulations the resources they require to do their job properly, rather than uh, to spend another two years waiting for the results of an expensive Royal Commission in order to achieve an outcome that I think can be achieved at present given sufficient political will. Given that, I mean, the the big question is why has there been such a series of misdemeanours, of issues with the banks in the last two years? What has caused this? Uh, I think there are a number of reasons, and I would want to be careful about generalising across uh, the entire financial sector. But first of all, I think there is fairly clear evidence that in a number of instances, perverse financial incentives, the way remuneration in some financial institutions has been and is still structured, has encouraged various forms of bad behaviour. And that's something that's been thrown up by uh, evidence in other countries which had a much more serious experience of the financial crisis than we did, that people who work for financial institutions can, in some cases, be confronted with enormous inducements simply to get product out the door, as it were, and not sufficient inducement to have sufficient regard to the particular requirements and circumstances of individual customers or to consider the broader implications of behaviour that might be profitable for the financial institutions in questions, but harmful to other parts of the economy or to the broader society. So there are certainly some legitimate questions to be considered about the structure of remuneration in financial institutions and the way that that's handed out. And ultimately, the responsibility for that ought to be sheeted home to boards of directors of banks, because that is ultimately their responsibility. Another broad problem that I think does lie behind some, though not all, of the scandals that have come to light in the Australian financial sector in recent years, is the nature of the consumer and investor protection regime, which has developed in Australia over the last two decades. That's one which says that provided financial institutions make what regulators regard as sufficient and adequate disclosure of the aspects of particular investment products and the risks associated with them, then they can market those products to almost whomever they like. Now, that implicitly assumes that all investors, all individuals have the capacity to and the willingness to read and understand what the contents of what can now often be product disclosure statements that run to well over a 100 closely typed pages uh, using legalistic and other jargon that can be very difficult for ordinary people to understand. In other countries, the consumer and investor protection regimes quite often dictate that certain types of products can't be offered to other than sophisticated investors or professional investors, terms which are in turn 
described and spelt out in legislation or regulations. And I think our investor and consumer protection regime, which in effect says that provided you disclose everything, you've discharged all of the duties and responsibilities that you should have, is something that, again, should be seriously looked at and questioned in my view. Uh, But again, to reiterate, I think both of those things and possibly others can be done in response to all of these scandals without needing a royal commission. Do you expect ASIC will uh, come out with those sorts of recommendations? They could come out with those sorts of recommendations, although ASIC's job is, as is APRA's, by and large to administer and enforce legislation and regulation that is made by Parliament. So to a very large extent, I think the onus for Uh, changes to the legal framework within which financial institutions are expected to operate uh, lies with our elected representatives and those who advise them. Indeed. Now, ASIC has been going down the direction of uh, enforcing uh, greater codes of ethics on the boards of banks. Uh, Do you expect this will be successful? Uh, Remains to be seen, um, and it may well be that more legislation, more formal requirements are required rather than simply uh, codes of ethics. And I note in passing that the banker's oath, which has been developed in European countries in response to the financial crisis and to which many financial institutions and individual senior managers of financial organisations and institutions in the Northern Hemisphere have signed up, hasn't caught on nearly as well in Australia. I think only one major bank's board and senior executives have signed up to that. Perhaps questions should be asked as to why that hasn't been more or less universal across the Australian financial sector. Again, of course, that relies predominantly on moral suasion rather than regulation and legislation. But nonetheless, I think it would be a starting point for improved standards of ethical conduct and behaviour in Australia's financial institutions. So, Leslie, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure again, as always. Well, as usual, Saul was very interesting. What do you think, Leon? Well, I think he has a point. He says that there really is no point having a royal commission, which will take two years, it'll cost $50 million, and really we already have the processes in place to actually manage it. And he identifies why the banking scandals have happened. There's been something like 13 of them over the last two years. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, you've got to say, well, the, the great financial crisis was caused by a bunch of banks uh, and some of the cowboys therein, and I, I guess they're going to do it again unless uh, somebody sits on fairly heavily. But a Royal Commission seems a huge waste of money to me. Well, to my, to my way of thinking, the answer has to come from Parliament. That's it, and we need stronger yeah. laws. But that's, that's all we can say. Anyway, it's been a terrific week in news, Gary. First of all, the International Monetary Fund has cut its world expansion forecast because of weak exports and slowing investments, uh, dimming prospects in the US, uh, consumption tax hike uh, saps growth in Japan, and a slump in the price of everything from oil to wheat continues to hobble commodity producers. And according to the IMF, the world economy will grow 3.2% this year. That's down from 3.4% in January. Now, that's the fourth time in a year 
that it's downgraded its growth forecast, and that to me suggests that the IMF and policymakers are having a lot of trouble getting their heads around what's happening with the global economy, Gary. Yeah, that's right. Well, part of part of the problem is, of course, it's up and down like a yo-yo, but uh, a drop in agricultural products is very serious for us, given the uh, fall in mineral prices as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only plus side of it was it actually forecast a 0.2% rise in growth for China, which is interesting because uh, China's just uh, reported 18.7% rise in its uh, in its in its exports and uh, everyone's expecting it's going to come out with 6.7% growth on Friday. But um the issue with China is steel at the moment and uh China's been in touch with England. They've been talking to England about working with the rest of the world to find an appropriate resolution to overcapacity in the steel sector. A huge overcapacity and weak demand has prompted China, which is also the world's top steel consumer, to ramp up exports to record highs, and that's dragged down global price of a commodity to decade lows. And that's critical, Gary, because Arium, which was formerly one steel, which is now in voluntary administration, was subject to predatory practices of some other steel-producing countries, chief among them China, which has been oversupplying the global market by expanding its steel production. Yeah, that that's right. But they've all China's also had huge layoffs in uh, in steel related industries, so I guess it's tough there as well. That's right. So anyway, China says it's going to prepare to work with the international community to resolve this problem. And but given look, China makes up half the world's steel and exports a record hundred and twelve million dollars last year of steel. It's it's going to be a big issue to sort out, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Now, while we're on uh, the subject of Arium, the insolvency firm installed as administrators for the embattled steelmaker Arium has been replaced less than a week after it was appointed. And there was this curious push where the Australian Workers' Union got together with the banks and to have the firm Grant Thornton replaced with Corda Mentha to take over as administrators. Yeah, Greg Combay did that, didn't he? Well, Greg Combay, of course, was involved with Cordamentha when Cordamentha was a fledgling company handling the ANSET collapse. Oh, yeah, of course. And uh, Greg Combay ended up saving a lot of the entitlements of ANSET employees, so the unions still remember him for that. Arium had infuriated the bankers by, cho- by appointing Grant Thornton without consulting them. And they were, and of course, Arium owes the owes the lender something like two point eight billion dollars, and uh, they yeah. they are furious. Yeah, they they looking down the the throat of having a bath, aren't they? That's right. Well, I think there might be some legal action over that. Now, uh, Malcolm Turnbull gave a speech to the um, Liberal Party Victorian Liberal Party uh, conference last Saturday, and he said that the Turnbull government will focus on explicit and short-term tax breaks to boost investment in economic growth in next month's federal budget while mapping out medium-term plans to lower company taxes. So don't expect big company tax cuts, he was saying. And the government is winding back expectations of significant tax policy changes in the budget or before the federal elections. And he said there will be no handouts in the budget. He said there will be no fistful of dollars. Yeah, I think what Malcolm's trying to do is get through the election and then uh, then he's got some got a mandate really of his own. He can do something. Well, the other big interesting thing is this week there was reports that he's set to announce a radical new funding plan that could see a high-speed rail network for Australia's east coast. 
And the private permit said previously lent support to plans for a fast train in Sydney for starters with a view to building a larger high-speed rail network, but he hasn't been able to explain how his cash-strapped government could pay for it. And now it looks like they're looking at a new funding system for nation-building progress, including contributions from the private sector uh, to bring uh, a fast train plan into this year's election. And the Prime Minister is set to unveil his city's policy, which will include a proposal for changes to Australian infrastructure projects. Now, a fast train from Sydney CBT to Badgerys Creek, which is, of course, the site of the city's second airport, is said to be the government's first priority. And the Western Sydney route is planned to be extended afterwards with links to regional centres. And there's talk of a similar plan in the works to link Melbourne to its regional neighbour, Shepparton. And that would lay the foundation for a long-term fast train network eventually running the nation's east coast from Melbourne to Brisbane. So that's going to be something to watch. Yes, it will indeed. And, and you know, the cynics will say that uh, Shades of Labor's NBN, the Big Bang uh, the Big Bang Project. Well, they've been talking about this for years and never, never got round to it. So let's just see what's going to happen. Now, the coalition government has moved to turn industrial relations into a key election issue. It's announced plans that if it's elected back to office, it will abolish the Gillard government-appointed Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal, which sets minimum pay rates for truck drivers. And the tribunal had been set up by the Labor government on the ground that it would stop truckies from driving safely to expedite deliveries. And the coalition has argued that it hurts owner drivers who don't work for big companies. And the government wants to introduce that into Parliament next week. And apparently it's convinced the crossbenchers now, so it might have the numbers. Yeah, it might get through. Yeah, well... Let's see what happens. That's right. Now, Treasurer Scott Morrison, uh, with all this talk of having um, a royal commission that we talked about with uh, Saul Leslake, he's said he will boost the resources for banking regulations and will work with banks on improving their culture. Uh, this comes as pressure builds inside the coalition to back Labor's call for a royal commission because there are people inside the coalition like Warren Inch and uh, John Williams, the National Party guy, uh, to set up a royal commission. And uh, Morrison rejected Labor's promise as a stunt designed to distract from um, the next week's debate over trade union regulations when Parliament reduced, resumes for its special three-week sitting. And he said the banks were already well governed, but he said he would seek to ensure regulators like ASIC and APRA were adequately resourced. So, And, of course, their funding, ASIC's funding, was cut in the Abbott government's budget quite severely. Yeah. So now they're yeah. going to reintroduce that. Yeah, yeah, and it looks as our Royal Commission not on the not on the slate anyway, doesn't it? Definitely not, as far as the government's concerned. And and uh, I think Saul Saul is like raises some very good points about it. Now, um, the latest NAB Business Conditions Survey shows that Australia has weathered the financial crisis well, and business conditions are back to their best level since the global financial crisis. This NAB survey found that overall business conditions rose by four points to twelve index points in March, and that's the highest level since two thousand and eight and is strong in all areas of trade, profit, and employment. And that's really good, Gary. Yeah, we're starting to look back at uh, the lucky country again uh, by a whisker or two. Well, yeah, well, if you've got uh, GDP growing at 3%, that's not bad, and unemployment's down at 5.8%. But uh, but uh, then again, consumers are feeling a bit rattled by uh, the share market losses, and the Westpac Melbourne Institute of Insects of Consumer Sentiment fell by 4% this month, sliding from 99.1%, uh, sliding down quite severely. And people are rattled by the, what's happened in the share market. Now, Australian Tax Commissioner Chris Jordan 
has become a key figure in the international response to last week's release of the Panama Papers, which have sent shockwaves around the world, and he's coordinating how countries are going to handle the massive release of documents detailing how companies and individuals are using tax havens to avoid tax. Now, Chris Jordan is chair of a joint international tax shelter and collaboration network, which is part of the OECD Forum on Tax Administration, and he's going to be meeting with them, with uh, all these tax officials from around the world in Paris, to talk about how to pull their responses, to analyse the data and set up a response to it. And that's quite good. Australia's take on the front foot about this. Yeah, it's very good. It's good for Chris and and for his uh, office. That's right. Now, uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch is warning clients that with the property slowdown, Australians will have seen their last property boom in many years. And it's warned that prices will be affected by significant oversupply of apartments, particularly in the central parts of Melbourne and Brisbane. And they're warning that the oversupply issue could take years to resolve because you've got falling immigration numbers slowing down population growth. And they're saying as a result, people with negatively geared investment properties might have to hold on to them for longer before they make any money. If they do. At the same time, these investors, they say, are facing regulatory risks from both sides of politics. So, um, But the issue for Bank of America Merrill Lynch is we're not going to see another property boom for many, many, many years in Australia. And some of the investors who bought off the plan are said to be uh, underwater already. And the final bit of news, Gary, is that Clive Palmer's Queensland Nickel is going to be liquidated. The billionaire MP could face criminal charges for breaches of the Corporations Act. And his actions have been referred to ASIC, which is investigating the circumstances surrounding Queensland Nickel. And a report by FTI Consulting comes ahead of a vote by creditors on April the 22nd, whether to place the company into liquidation. Now, Queensland Nickels owes more than $100 million to creditors. That includes its employees. And uh, according to uh, FTI, the creditors are going to get absolutely nothing or 52.31 cents in the dollar back. And the report also found that Palmer had acted as a shadow director from February 2012 up until the time administrators were appointed in January. Now, he's denied these claims, um, and they've identified potentially unreasonable or uncommercial director-related transactions where $26 million of the company's funds were transferred to other parties as donations to political parties and sponsorship fees. And that includes $21.4 million donated to the Palmer United Party. Yeah, when when Clive was uh, tapped about that, he said, "Well, I own the company anyway." But well, that's well, looking a bit thin. He's denying it, and he's saying he's looking forward to a fight in the courts. But I think uh, I think this could actually be a lot of trouble for him. And that could be the end of the Palmer United Party. And that could be the end of his political career, anyway. Absolutely. And maybe the end of his career as a company director. Anyway, and that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week we're going to be talking to Stuart Mills from CenturyLink. Yep, it's a big uh, multi-billion dollar American communications company and Stuart's the uh, CEO in Australia. And he's going to talk all about uh, the cloud and what it really means. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.